How's it? This week, we're joined by Kalani Ka'ana'ana, Director of Cultural Affairs and Natural Resources for the Hawaii Tourism Authority. We'll talk about tourism coming out of COVID, and we'll also talk about what tourism could be going forward long term, especially how it can integrate with island and Hawaiian culture. We'll also talk about a few other things, including me relearning what the word haole actually means. Thanks again for joining us. Please hit that subscribe button and also rate our podcast. You can tell me in the comments that we suck. Main thing, you leave a comment and give us five stars. Thanks again for joining us as we come to you from On The Rock. How's it, brother? What's up, Kalani? How are you? Hello, I'm good. Thanks for having me today. All right. So simple protocol. Um, we'll go with. Uh, so I noticed on your your LinkedIn that you used to paddle, but I would ask you a paddling question. But we'll we'll go with um, since you're in tourism, go with name, where you from, and then the first place you want to go visit once we're allowed to actually fly to places. Sure. So Kalani Ka'ana'ana, I'm from Keolu Kailua O'ahu. And the first place I think I want to visit is probably New Zealand, um, just because I've never been. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that's a good, I I actually never been, but that's on my, one of my places to go. Um, They might be the last place to open back up to the, the, you know, Americans though. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're like the best uh, they've handled the situation probably the best in the world and number one reason is because they just locked down the island and and shut everybody out amazing what sovereignty allows you to do <laughs> <laughs> yeah right i mean they're they're able to i mean i i guess you can explain this to me but my understanding of the situation was we couldn't shut down totally or like keep everybody out because of it because it's a faa call it's not a state of hawaii call is that correct yeah and and i'll be the first to claim i'm not a lawyer but from what i understand also uh, it has to do with the interstate commerce clause and the right of any u.s citizen to travel interstate so gotcha so in that that's pretty much why we couldn't we couldn't lock it down even though i'm sure there are a lot of people including myself who said just close the island, right? like just shut it down. We'd be okay, and then and that's it. But um, yeah, and I think Eric Eric was really um good about not saying it direct. But he basically said when uh, for his market, which is Japan, when uh, we instituted the fourteen day travel quarantine, they kind of caught the hint that maybe we shouldn't come, and they mm-hmm. voluntarily stopped flying down so um but that's according to eric of course but so tell us what you do what's your position and and what you do at the hta sure so i'm the director of hawaiian cultural affairs and natural resources at the hawaii tourism authority um and i can do everything from in normal times working with our marketing contractors to make sure that they're authentically and accurately portraying hawaiian culture in their work or it can be working with community-based nonprofits who are awarded funds through our RFPs um, and everything in between, um, testifying at the legislature, you name it, kind of all over the place. Gotcha. And then, yeah, just so people understand, I met you when I was at Kupu 
because Kupu was uh, fortunate enough to get awarded some of the HTA grants. So I think that's one thing to to talk about right off the bat is because I think a lot of people just hear HTA and they think you guys are marketing and that's all you do with the, the TAT tax funding. But what else kind of activities do you do at HTA besides just marketing Hawaii? Yeah, I think uh, what's fundamentally shifted, at least in the four years that I've been at HTA, is really an increased emphasis and focus on what maybe we would call destination management, uh, which is not only the, the branding aspect of it, which has been our traditional role, where I think we put a lot of effort and funding, um, but now more so on reinvesting in home, right? Reinvesting, supporting people in place and recognizing that if we don't have a vibrant, thriving community and natural resources to support us, um, then first and foremost, no past the how can test, right? How can we live here? How can we afford to live here? And all of those questions that come up um, have to be a part of our larger equation. And then the branding side of it and building travel demand is another side of it. So as, so. as you're in your role, you mentioned that part of your job is to um, make sure that your contractors are um, aligning well with culture or, or being um, doing it well, doing it and doing it right. So what does that entail? I mean, who, who do you consider contractors and operators? Yeah, so I mean, directly we've supported um, previous to COVID uh, nine global marketing contractors or a global marketing team, uh, each of them with an area of responsibility, usually a country, uh, in the case of Southeast Asia, a few countries, or maybe in Europe, um, but primarily they have one area of responsibility. And so they were responsible and on the ground um, to represent us to those markets. And so I would work with them. We would do cultural training to make sure that they had a base level of understanding of our destination and our home. Um, and then understanding that they could use that as a foundation or a platform from which to do the technical work that they do and they're, they're good at and actually implementing marketing campaigns. So how do you strike that? I mean, where do you find that balance between um, portraying the culture accurately and, and, and doing it right? And then the, the, between that and the fine line of the, on the other side, which would be more on the exploitative side. How do you find that balance? I'd just argue it's not a balance. I'd argue either we're doing it right or we're not doing it right. Um, and I know not everything in life can be so cut and dry and black and white. Um, but I think quite honestly, um, there's a right way and a wrong way. And it's as simple as that. And so if you're even in the spectrum of exploitive or provocative or romanticizing um, culture, you're, you're moving in the wrong direction and we got to get you to come back the other way. So, And what tools besides you, because you're one person at the HTA and I, I, I'm not sure if you have other people reporting to you as far as being um, resources, but how do people, how do operators all over the state find these resources to be able to know whether or not they're in the right or they're doing it wrong? Yeah, so in 2016, it was me and Venji. Um, my trusty admin, um, and now we're actually up to a team of four, uh, oh, wow. director and nice. myself. So that's been really nice um, to see the leadership uh, and board to uh, understand the importance of that and invest in it. And then by extension, we also contract with the Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association, who also provides free training that are underwritten by HTA. So that's one way. And then there's some really tactical stuff like the Ma'ima'i toolkit uh, that we publish and update annually. 
Gotcha. And I know a lot of, um, especially larger properties or larger companies, are also putting investment into um, hiring people who can be resources um, within their company to ensure that they're they're doing it the right way, which is which is probably the most important thing. Um, but and the and I'm assuming you guys kind of work with each other either through the Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association or directly, correct? Yeah, and it's it's really been fascinating to watch um, people like George Kanahele and Kenny Brown's vision come to fruition to see properties and activities and attractions actually hiring cultural experts uh, to help them navigate that. And so, yeah, we've sort of formed an informal hui and we try to meet as often as we can. But um, yeah, it's really exciting to see people actually being invested in and creating jobs in that, that field. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's 100%. I think... Um since I've been back in Hawaii, which is in 20 years now, uh, after college, um, I've, I've been able to see the shift in tourism quite a bit, um, but also in a bad way where it became a lot of people. I think from when I first moved back in 2001 to now, it, or pre-COVID, I should say, it was like, crazy much a crazy amount more of people so how do we um how do we get back to a, a balance like what is the balance how do we get back to a balance between a good amount of tourists but not too much but a good but still generating a good amount of revenue for the state yeah so um that's the 17 billion dollar question um and quite frankly it really has to be predicated on i think uh, one overarching theme. Uh, for me, it's it's an alignment of people, place, and purpose. Um, and if all three of those can be in alignment around this idea of a malama ethic, uh, one that asks us to do no harm first, and then to actually rehabilitate or enhance places that have been degraded, if we can get to that kind of regenerative model of tourism, I think that that's where we'll find the balance. Uh, that'll challenge us to adopt emerging technologies to attract the right traveler, a Pono traveler, one that has good intentions. Um, and then also just making sure that we're hitting the right demographics and we're getting the right spend. And, and you know, I hate to talk about it so plainly, but quite frankly, we've got to see the right spend out of these travelers as well um, in order to provide for the state. So oh, have you, is it, um, I, I don't know the data offhand, but has the, um, tourism spend, the, the tourist spend been de on the decline on an individual level? Well, that's the big debate. And honestly, some of it is, um, it's just a, a round robin of conversation that's been going on for a long time. Nominal versus real dollars, whether or not you're adjusting for inflation or not. Some people say that it's the inflation adjusted number that we should be using. Um, and at the end of the day, sometimes we go out and we buy bread we'll go by milk, but we're not adjusting for inflation for those dollars. So it's that back and forth conversation between the two. Um, ultimately, though, I think we have to be mindful of where we are spending our marketing dollars and making sure we get that return on objective that we're looking for. And I think that really leads us to this conversation of going beyond the traditional metrics of tourism, of arrivals and RevPAR and, you know, those sorts of things, which are important, um, but asking other metrics like resident sentiment. How do residents feel about tourism? Do we feel it's bringing more benefits than problems? Um, and so I think it really is a shift there as well about measuring what matters and then measuring the right things. Are, 
is the state moving toward uh, different kind of KPI and metrics that, that kind of measure that kind of stuff? Yeah, I'm really excited. Our board in January of this year adopted our new five-year strategic plan. And in that strat plan, it adopted four, uh, four pillars. Uh, the first being our natural resources, second Hawaiian culture, third community, and fourth um, brand marketing. Beyond that, we also adopted four new primary KPIs. The first of which is resident sentiment that I mentioned, visitor satisfaction. So do visitors feel like they got a value for their time here? Uh, and then per person per day spend and total expenditures. So gotcha. I think in and of that, that those two are really uh, tectonic shifts in our thinking about what's important and then how to holistically manage tourism. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I think a lot of people, um, including myself, who was never really super involved in the tourism industry, are starting to ask these questions just because we realize the amount of um, trickle that the tourism economy brings because it's our chief um, income, chief source of income. Once it's gone, it really is impacting everything, including uh, nonprofits, which is my my field. If I was still in private sector, I'm guessing it'd be the same thing. So how do we, um, we already delayed the restart or the um, restart of the tourism. How do we safely start it and how how should we be kind of starting to open up? Yeah, I think fundamentally the governor has kind of articulated that, right? And it has to be predicated on not just one singular piece, right? Like I think for me, uh, there's a lot of overemphasis on one date. And then beyond that, it's this overemphasis on just the pre-travel testing. Um, that's just one layer, right? We have to also have the testing capacity here. We have to have ICU beds, ventilators. So there's all these other metrics um, that go into what could make reopening safely look like. Part of it also is just making sure our workers are safe and that they feel safe. Um, and so that's another element of this reopening that I think has to happen. Um, but getting people back to work is really important too. Um, and so I think of it like two halls in a canoe. Um, on one hall, you've got the immediate needs that our communities have and our economy has. And then you have the other side that's the more transformational, uh, longer term recovery, and then building something that we want to see, right? We have this wonderful opportunity, as horrible as a cause um, for it, but we have this wonderful opportunity to rethink tourism moving forward. And if uh, we reopen correctly and we do it safely, it'll give us the next step, which is then to transform toward a more regenerative model. And and when you say regenerative model, like um, what kind of what kind of more in more detail, like what kind of principles are you thinking of? Yeah, quite simply, it's that tourism should first do no harm. Um, that tourism shouldn't be harming our environment or our people or our quality of life. And then beyond that, we have to engage visitors in the process of regenerating, giving back, taking care of this place. It's sort of like we all grow up, right? You leave a place better um, when you leave than when you found it. And hopefully that visitors come with that same mana'o um, of the purpose of their trip. And I, I go back to that idea of people, place, and purpose, um, that we really have to find that alignment. And how do you think we get there? As far, okay, well, this, this more specifically, when, when we talk about visitors and having a, a Pono visitor, um, somebody with the knowledge, the mana'o to understand um, to do no harm how do we how do we get there how mm. do we get visitors to understand when they come and they're coming from all over the place so we can't just like write it down or something how do we get it to that point yeah you know i think for me um 
it ultimately starts with education. So while our branding efforts are meant to educate people about the destination, I think they also have to incorporate educating travelers of what their responsibilities are when they travel. Um, it's no different than other destinations. And I'm not advocating this, so I just want to give that caveat. But Singapore is really clear about what the consequences are if you break their laws. So I'm not advocating for corporal punishment. <laughs> no, no whipping with the uh, bamboo or whatever yeah, they used to do. Yeah. People, but um, <laughs> the expectation is clear to travelers. When I traveled to Singapore in 2019, I think, or 20, excuse me, 2018, um, it was really clear on the bottom of the customs form, it said drug uh, offenses are punishable by death. They make it abundantly clear <laughs> yeah. uh, what the expectation is. And so maybe a drawn back way, I'm saying, you know, when you come home, you go to someone's house, you take something with you, yeah? you know, show up empty-handed. Yeah. And then maybe the, the interpretation of that in, in travel and visitation and hospitality is, I'm going to bring good intentions and I'm going to bring the knowledge of what my responsibilities are. And I'm bringing that to your house. Um, and so it's rethinking those old things about Hawaii uh, that we all grew up with and maybe just um, teaching folks a little bit about that. That makes total sense. I mean... I think that's the hardest part for me as far as, and I, again, I'm not in the, the visitor industry, so I, it's hard, but in my limited time when I used to wait tables back in the day, it, it's hard to teach people who aren't from Hawaii some of these um, cultural norms that we have because we're not like the continent, but yet we're not like Japan or some of these other places that they're coming from. We, we have our own style. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think you could teach that besides just informing them? Is it is it through training the staff so the staff can kind of implement it better? Is it training the airlines so that as they're flying in, they're already getting kind of embedded in this cultural um, shift? You know, I'm going to defer to marketing professionals, right? That's their background. But to me... Um, as somebody who also didn't come from this industry, I've seen the ways that we tell stories and who our ambassadors are that tell those stories. And I think you can weave those principles about what's expected here and what makes here so unique in that travel destination promoting, right? That, that happens. So when we send ambassadors out there into the world to go promote Hawaii to travel agents in California, for example, they can incorporate as part of their presentations, hey, no show up empty handed. And you know what you gotta do? You gotta bring a good attitude. And yeah. it's as simple as that. Um, and it's asking people, it's not shaking your finger and saying no, no, no. I think it's an invitation to come live our shared values here in Hawaii. Yeah, I think that's an important point that you made at the end because I think that holds, I've had a conversation with different people about um, people who grew up on the continent and they move here. And it's that culture shock and that that learning curve of understanding that, you know, the way we operate, the way we do business, especially business, um, which is really weird. Um, it's a nuanced way. No, Hawaii has a nuanced way of yeah. doing business. Yeah. And, and it's not, you know, trying not to shake the finger and going like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But it's more of trying to explain like, people got to trust you so before you try to cram the sales contract you know into their inbox you gotta like talk stories with them and not ask for anything 
initially and kind of just be cool and then eventually they'll ask you and they'll buy more from you so it's a weird thing but i think that kind of approach makes sense uh now tourism such a big driver as we're seeing right now everybody's kind of suffering a little bit e- economically in hawaii when we restart how can we shift tourism so that it really does drive more pieces of the economy versus just the local economy versus just kind of feeding mostly just salaries and wages yeah you know i'll be honest and upfront i don't know the answer to that outright you know when i think about that question though things that i ponder um how do we share the benefits of tourism more equitably how do we get people um you know i use the this idea of an Hawaii, right? Um, in an Aupua a system, you've got the big main water source, whether it be a waterfall or a river, and you've got all this resource flowing, right? And we build these Awai, these ditches that are then managing that impact um, and then spreading it apart and getting it more controlled over time. And I think tourism in a similar way has to sort of be managed, but it's also got to be shared more equitably, right? So how do we get community-based nonprofits who oftentimes need cash and labor um, into the visitor industry stream, if you will, and and really say, hey, these are visitors who have good mana'o and they want to come learn and have a unique experience and they want to get in the lo'i and they're willing to pay for that experience. And now, boom, you've done two things. You've enriched that visitor's experience with a really unique and personal, relational, two-way, reciprocal kind of relationship, which is where I think tourism needs to get back to, needs to be more relational and less transactional. Um, but then also now that nonprofit gets the benefit of that in fund, uh, that funding coming in um, to help them do what they got to do. So I think it's like a perfect marriage of the two needs. Um, some may argue that that's creating more overdependence on tourism, um, but I'm saying tourism's not going to go away overnight. And so we have to find ways for tourism to become a catalyst for the kind of diversi- uh, diversification that we want to see. And so if tourism can help seed that farm to do more stuff, to get them on their feet and get uh, unstable, uh, then tourism can certainly play that role in the interim or in that intermediate stage of people transitioning. So it's not a light switch. Yeah. And I, I don't think, I mean, it's, it's a question I've been asking virtually everybody who's come on here um, and, and my circle of friends um, is just trying to think through like, how does obviously tourism fits i like your analogy of the the river and the awai um you know because i think no matter what tourism will always be the if not one of the main branches of income and and business that we have here um i think we had some some distribution but probably only to certain places and and the thing i worry about is that was the distribution was most of those funds it seems like most of those funds were leaving the state so all that money that flowed in through all these tourism dollars and we measured their spend how much of it now goes back to either investors on the continent or all over the world or to vendors that we buy our food from or you know wherever Mm -hmm. how why you know we just seeing it kind of flow back out um yeah, I don't know. What's if you had a pure like end goal of what you want to see in maybe two years? Say if we we do start allowing people back in August, 
and we come back here a year from now or two years from now, what do you hope is happening? I think um, first and foremost, to be honest, I think the changes that we want to see are going to require a level of consciousness um, that we don't possess right now. We've got to completely rethink the model. And so for me, my short-term goal is to help people open their thinking and to dream with their eyes open about what our tourism future looks like um, and what we want to see. Because once people have it in their mind, it's like navigating, right? Uncle Neno always talks about this a lot. And a lot of the people that I know that are in navigation, they're like, you got to see the island in your mind. You got to know where you can go before you even start. And I think that that's my short-term goal. So if you ask me that two-year goal, um, it's really that. It's about getting the most number of people that we can to re-envision and rethink tourism, rethink tourism's role in our economy. If we continue to think that tourism should be the exclusive and only driving factor of our economy, we're going to get results that support that way of thinking. If we think about tourism as being the catalyst by which to support growing our own food, if we think about tourism as uh, a way to support nonprofits, if we think about tourism and rethinking tourism as a way to keep more dollars in Hawaii, if we think through that goal, then our actions will follow. And so that's kind of my short answer. Do you think there's a model that exists that or a place that's doing it well that we can look at? I'm sure there is. Um, I've seen some interesting um, examples. I think one of them was don't quote me on this. I got to go double check. I just <laughs> That's it. fine. Hey, I, this I is laid back. There's no research on this podcast. We just talk stories, bro. Like, I don't, I don't do any research. Norway. <laughs> I think it was Norway um, that had that example. But, um, you know, Matt Lynch. Yeah. Which, I'm going to have him on soon. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So I'm going to kind of step back a few steps and come back to this point. But have you heard about the Aina Aloha Economic Futures Declaration? Yes. I actually signed it. Initially. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so I invite anyone to join that, right? Like our yeah. whole thing as co-authors of that effort was to create an inclusive process by which to get community voices engaged in solving our toughest problems. And so we had a session or 14 sessions, I think it was over this last week on everything from um, energy resilience and climate and regenerative tourism and housing and food systems and circular economies and immediate needs. And so one of the things that came out of that for me was exactly your point. And I want to bring it back because I think it's really important. How many of the dollars earned in tourism stay in Hawaii? Mm -hmm. I think that's got to become a measure by which we evaluate the system, right? Um, it's something that lots of economies think about and what that inflow and outflow of dollars looks like. So um, just to kind of come back to that point, I think it's really important. So measuring yeah, what matters. There's a... Um so I haven't gotten all, through all of the, the episodes, but there's a like docu series on Netflix by Killer Mike. He's this okay. uh, rapper out yeah. of Atlanta, yeah. Killer Mike. Yeah. But he he talks about um, the one of the episodes is about the black community's economy, mm -hmm. and there is a measure that he uses in that episode where they measure the amount of time, like minutes or hours or days a dollar stays within the black community before it exits and they oh. kind of compare it across different um ethnic uh, groups so asians were great it was like 
days. The dollar will stay in in their community for the days because they have stores and they have services yeah. that, yeah. and they're very loyal to their friends yeah. and their families or whatever. So you know, uh, for example, a Japanese will go to Nigeria or to Shirkia and like you know shop there, yeah. and um, and vice versa. Korean, you can pick it right. Uh, Vietnamese, they go to their their places, their friends, but the black economy, because they're so depressed or and there's not a lot of businesses owned by black people, the mo- the money doesn't stay. It it leaves and it goes. So like he he mm-hmm. tried to do like a couple days where he spent only within the black community and he had to like give up his car because his car obviously isn't. Is that the episode where he yeah. starts walking? And he's like yeah. in the barbecue yeah. place. He had to walk. Okay, that's all. Yeah, but yeah. My point is, if and I would, I would guess this would fall under D bed. But if there was a measure to actually see, like, okay, how much if I earn a dollar here, how much of that stays, whether it's in housing, mm. food, you know, clothing services right how much of that stays here and i would guess it doesn't it's not a lot um you know and and one of my big i and i hope my hope for the tourism economy is like our tourism sector i think one of the easiest biggest things they can do is start really pouring money into local food production i think if Mm. hotels um i think a lot of restaurants are starting to do it but some of these places that feed our visitors start to invest and say like we want you know we'll we'll spend a little bit more if it's local to you know versus Mm -hmm. buying from from the continent i think we could make some pretty huge strides right away yeah, and you know the Farm Bureau presented at a House COVID committee meeting. Of, I want to say maybe about a month and a half, maybe two months ago, that somewhere between forty and fifty percent of the production of local farms does go to the visitor industry. And so I think that's happening. But I think what it again has to do is it has to become the catalyst, right? It has to help us grow food for ourselves. And so I think what COVID's presented us. Uh, you look at all these CSA boxes going to people's homes. You know, my neighbor across the street from where I live got a CSA box mm-hmm. delivered yesterday. And I was like, I stopped the auntie delivering the box. I was like, hey, which farm are you from? And I started talking story with her and trying to figure out, you know, is that something that I can do? Do they have the capacity to support more distribution? So I hear you. And again, it just has to go back to how can tourism be the catalyst for these kinds of things? Because at the end of the day, if we cannot feed ourselves and we cannot take care of ourselves, we then cannot be good hosts, right? If I cannot take care of our own, I don't have the capacity to invite people to come. And I think that that's, again, one of those conscious level switches that has to happen is, as residents, are we ready and capable and resourced enough to make the invitation? And so that's, I think, the question before leaders. I today. think it's a hard stat, though, as far as the forty percent, um, because what percentage of the food that the hotels are buying is local? If it's only five percent, then forty percent of five is is small, sure. right? Um, but that also sure. boils down. We're only growing ten percent, right? But in yeah. the other ninety. 40% out of 10%. Yeah, that's why I mean, oh, it's a tough, when I hear numbers like that, I mean, well, as a 
as a numbers guy, you can make numbers sound however you want to sound. And 40% yeah. sounds spectacular, but when it's only 10% of the whole, that 40% is more like 4%. Right. So, um, but I, I think those are all good points about the tourism economy. I think, you know, I'm at this point, at, at first, when we first, when COVID first started hitting back in February, March, I was 100% shut it down, shut everything down, closed, like, because it was scary. Yeah, it was kind of scary. The initial cases were all visitor-driven or people returning from, from the continent, like, um, the, what's his name, the, the senator that went to Vegas and got sick. <laughs> but, so it, it was a little scary, but now we're what seven six months seven months in and it's like okay i think we kind of know what to expect it's bad it's very contagious but you know we gotta start opening somehow some way if not you know it's not gonna it's never gonna restart um but yeah that's all good stuff uh so i think we have to right we have hardcore tools that we can use now so while we recognize the, the severity of this disease, um, don't forget, wash your hands, physical distance, wear a mask. Three things, if we can, let's just get really yeah. good at that. Yeah, and I, I think yeah. it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, even within uh, hotels, it's a whole new um, economy of them buying face masks for all of their workers because it's going to be part of their uniform now, right? So... All those uniform makers locally are going to have to produce face masks to match every hotel's kind of branding, right, at this point. Um, so part of the reason I, I brought you on, too, is because I really um, respect your, your cultural knowledge. So we, we might shift a little here. And um, so just so for some background, uh, a few friends and I have been having a lot of discussions lately about the word hapa. Um, you know, it's it's a Hawaiian word, and it is, by definition, um, someone of mixed Hawaiian um, descent. At least that's my interpretation of what the actual definition is. But more widely, um, more worldwide, it's kind of taking more of a role of a, or definition of somebody of, of white and more Asian or some kind of um, mixed heritage. So I wanted to kind of ping you and tap your brain and kind of ask you what your thoughts of, are about the word hapa and its current usage. And should it be used that way? Should yeah. it? not be used that way you know I'm, I'm probably you know <laughs> it's funny i don't pretend to know everything and this is one of the ones that i know i don't know uh if i sort of took it very technically you go look it up in the dictionary yeah it says of mixed blood a person of mixed blood um and whether or not that means it's hawaiian and something else or just a couple of other something else's you know i i really think that that's a social contract that changes over time um, and that's probably where we've gotten to. Um, you know, I was really listening to an interesting podcast, uh, the Code Switching podcast from NPR, and they did one recently mm -hmm. on Karens. 
um, and how it sort of has its own how it has its own genealogy of you know Karens is just the new name for things that have been describing uh, <laughs> Karens um, for a long period of time and so in a similar way I don't know if the social construct has just adapted over time um, to mean other things and I don't know yeah I, I have answer. I mean one of the ways it came up recently was um, we have a friend who's um, mixed mixed race Japanese and not from Hawaii but wanted to kind of use the word in a way for um, a, a company he's trying to start because a lot for him was he felt like he never had a community until he learned about that word in college and then all of a sudden that because the word has so much um it's it's very it's a lot more nice than half or hafu which is like the japanese or mulatto you know it's a nicer sounding better meaning word that it was a positive reaction for him and that's kind of where he wanted to come from so my point to him was i think if you're using the kind of term with a sense of aloha with us with a with good intentions then it it's not that difficult or it's not a bad thing to use but once you start using it in a bad way or for pure commercial purposes then it kind of becomes becomes an issue yeah so for me i probably would take that same tact in general of any word not just the word hapa but anytime you're going to use someone's language please understand the sacredness of that language um it could be me using the word utori or it could be me using the mm. word malama um, and I think you have to understand that that language imbues uh, an entire race of people's worldview, their understanding and relation to each other and, and place. And so you have to understand that your use of that word is intrinsically tied to that. And so, um, yeah, uh, in a similar way, yeah, if you're going to use it purely for commercial purposes or if you're going to start to use it as a way to divide um, or categorize you know, people um, yeah yeah or categorize yeah thank you um i think that that's where that gets a little dangerous and on shaky yeah. legs i think though at the, the other end of the spectrum is um how do we support hawaiian language that yeah we, I, I would love to see people using more hawaiian words um and i'm gonna go here how they right it's a really important word for us to discuss and be honest about and have conversations about because again social constructs and all of these uh, contextual things uh, imbue words with meaning that maybe yeah. it didn't have before, right? Yeah, let's talk about so, the word. I mean, in we, a, sh we should talk about that word. Um, personally, I think over the last, I don't know, especially the last five years, maybe since I worked at Kupu, and, and again, Kupu is not a native Hawaiian org, but it definitely has influences. And a lot of people there um, are from the community um, or are, are native Hawaiian and, and are language speakers. But more recently, I've tried to not use the word haole or haole, but haole when I'm, when I'm referring to a white person in general, like as a blanket statement, I use, try not to use it as much. Um, because once you kind of understand the meaning of the word, the, the origin of the word and why it was it was created it's it doesn't necessarily mean somebody who's white it does mean foreigner but but foreigner mm -hmm. even that definition is a 
a uh, English definition for the word. It's more somebody who doesn't have ha, right? And doesn't have that that aloha spirit. At least that's my understanding of what what the word kind of means. But yeah, let's talk about that word. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Every every place that I learned it, and this is controversial, but I'm going to stand on what I learned, and I want to qualify it by saying this is what I learned. Haole is not a word to be broken down into those two easy, understandable okay. root words. Haole is haole. It's okay. not haole. Um, so I kind of just want to push back on that. Um, I know that that's become a running narrative in the community, that that's what it means because it gives somebody an ability to try to understand and get away from the discomfort of having to actually talk about does haole mean Caucasian or does it mean someone foreign? So I don't want us to not have the tough conversation about the word haole because um, it's difficult. And then to replace it and make a narrative up that helps okay. us fill that's that good space. to see. I'm learning. That's good to know. So if it's not broken down into two words, from your understanding, what, what does it mean? Haole is foreigner. That's what it purely means that. Um, when you look at the stories of Pele and Hi'iaka, Pele was actually an Akua Malihini. She was, an, she was a Haole. She was a foreigner uh, to this place. And so, um, again, I, I really just, it's as simple as that. Um, foreigner, anyone not, not of this of place. Not of this place or just, so it could be anybody who's not from Hawaii. Hawaiian Kingdom citizens were of multiple races, whether you were Japanese, Portuguese, Chinese, you were a Hawaiian national, you were a citizen of this country, your allegiance was pledged to the king or the queen, you were of this place, you were born here, your family was born here, maybe your family immigrated here, you're so still of this place. is it um, a better way to describe um, your, your kama'aina or your haole? I mean, yeah, you could sort of say... Kamaina, you know, you're a kama, you're a, a child of this place, of this land. Um, and Malihini obviously is like a visitor to this place, which is transitional and shorter in terms of time. And Haole is just sort of, again, foreign, right? It's something different and not of this place. So I think it's a spectrum okay. and a radiant. No, that's right? helpful. Like, it's not either or, yes, Because no. I think I was starting yeah. to really adopt that narrative of the two words and that's how the word kind of formed because it makes total sense i mean if you kind of think about it but if that's not the i mean if you're if the way you learn is not that's not how the word is formed then that does shift the way i think about the word too i still try not to like refer to like my local um friend that i grew up with that's white as the howley the howley guy i'll try because he's not Right? He's not foreign. He's from here, right? But as a redheaded, fair skinned Hawaiian, <laughs> yeah. I understand. Yeah. Yeah, brother. You you're like uh, one of the least yeah. Hawaiian looking Hawaiians I know. <laughs> Guilty. And I'm a hapa, right? So it yeah. ties back to that word hapa. But I think the other thing that I would say is that I think we still can have a conversation and where I think maybe it's it's merged or coalesced is that if you're not of this place and you don't understand the cultural norms of this place, um, then it's really easy for you to sort of not understand us. And that idea and that narrative of without ha um, is still kind of true, right? So if you are a haole and you arrive here and you don't understand our ways, um, 
that it's it kind of means the same thing, but in terms of I guess language and linguistics, um, it's just very different to sort of create this narrative about breaking up the word into two smaller words that gotcha. I sort of take issue with. But the premise that if you're from a different place, you don't understand our customs. Uh, that's still very true and very valid. And I think that's where some of that nuance kind of happens is it's not breaking down the word to get to that narrative. That narrative is still valid, um, but let's just not break up the word. Gotcha. That makes total sense. Yeah, and that makes it easier to understand as far as, um, well, actually it makes it harder to understand because I think when you break down the word, it makes it a lot simpler, right? It's easier to, and maybe that's why that definition started to sprout out because it's an easy way to explain somebody without ha uh, and then that's a howley, right? But it, it gets a little more nuanced like between Malihini, Kama'aina, Kanaka, right? That like all of it gets a little more um nuanced. Well I think I think for me again, my how to test or my how can test, um, I think it's really offensive to accuse an entire race of people to not have ha, to not have mana, to not have chi, uh, those, that energy that's within us, uh, all of us, we all have it. And so I think to just flat out write somebody off as not having an essence or a spirit um, sort of dismisses them as being a whole person. And so I think that that's where I sort of take issue with breaking the word up into something, again, that's easy for people to understand, but really doesn't how let us have the difficult gotcha. conversation no that makes sense I'm, I'm glad we talked about it because it it definitely is shaping or will shape the way i use the word i already try not to use the word as best as i can because it some people take offense um you know especially um local my local white people because they probably heard it a bunch of times you know and in a in a derogatory way so i really try not to use the word unless i'm really feeling like that person doesn't understand what hawaii is about and what 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 it is to be a part of the community well and i think i would just challenge us right so any word with the wrong intention yeah. can become a dirty word right and I think also I want to challenge us that if we are feeling frustrated or if we're feeling that somebody isn't understanding, hearing, seeing us or meeting us where we're at, uh, it's really easy to throw a label at someone um, to try to, again, avoid a difficult conversation. And I would just encourage us that when we have those moments where we're dealing with somebody who doesn't trust us, respect us, all of those things that sort of set us off that are our triggers, um, to think about taking that pause taking that moment to decide how we're going to respond and then to really try to articulate what you're feeling so that they can understand that feeling. And I think it sort of helps us get closer, right? Instead of just going, yeah, right. Like it's, it's, that's easy. That's convenient. Um, and I want us to do better. I want us to be better. Hawaii is a place where I think we can understand each other and relate to one another. And we got to continue to sort of cultivate mm. that as a skill. Um, and not just rely on a crutch to just throw a label. And <laughs> yeah, usually there's an adjective there. before the howly when when I'm using it. There's some kind of. Um, <laughs> I wasn't sure. Yeah, the podcast yeah. No, you can't. Well. You can't. You can swear all you like on this thing. It is fine. It's um. But you're you're here in a professional um capacity. I'm kind of not. So you know, <laughs> this is just for fun for me. 
But that brings me to a question, and this is more of my current journey that I've been going on. Um, and it started when I started working at Kupu, but starting to understand my role in the community. I grew up really not connected to my Japanese um, culture background, other than local stuff like bon dance and you know. But other than uh, for understanding my hope, my original culture, I never really knew much. Too too far removed. And then I started working at the Japanese Cultural Center before Kupu, and started learning a lot. Got immersed in it. Then I went over to Kupu and started learning a different side, not more on Hawaiian culture, a little bit more on that stuff. Not not a lot, but started to learn more. And it makes me kind of wonder, like, it made me personally start to think, what role do I play as a, as a Japanese-American in Hawaii? But that grew up closer to the host culture versus my own um, original um, heritage. So how do, what do you think, I mean, I mean, this is a big question, but how do I, I guess, any tips for me navigating this journey and trying to figure out, like, where are my boundaries? Are there boundaries? Um, or what approach should I be taking to to understand the alignment that I have is closer to Hawaiian? I guess because for me, the guilt is I'm not Hawaiian. So, you know, part of me is kind of trying to figure out as a non-Kanaka, how do I connect? Because I feel more comfortable and more connected to that since I grew up here. Sorry, that was a long question. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, honestly, I just want to say what was the question in that, but I get where you're going. Well, that's the hard Um, part. I don't know where I'm going. So it's just me babbling until I get to someplace. No, and, I, you know, I think what you cannot have this conversation about race in Hawaii without understanding and going back far enough, right? If you look at the relationships um, that were formed uh, of the Hawaiian kingdom with other countries and treaties that were signed between other countries, uh, the ability of other races to have citizenship in this kingdom, in this country, um, if we really don't start there, it's really, I think it can be really easy to get tangled up in boundaries and what's what. I think fundamentally at the end of the day, we have to get back to a place where there's just plain old mutual respect. Um, And I think it's okay to respect other people's cultures. And and, and I think Hawaii people in general, local culture in general, uh, is one that has a lot of humility imbued in it, um, both from a Hawaiian side, Japanese side. I think there are a lot of places where humility uh, was a strong cultural force in our upbringing, regardless of what it was. Um, But I think that understanding your place and time, those are all things that are learned and experienced. And I think it's probably just as simple as knowing when to be quiet and when to empower and uplift others, uh, when to not um, be silent. Um, And it's very much what we're seeing with BLM, right? And we have to understand our role and our place um, and the burdens and all of those things. Um, that are placed on everyone um, and and sort of how do we understand where we want to get to and where do we want to go. And again, it kind of ties back to that idea of consciousness, right? Um, for a long time, Hawaiians were brought up to grow up and to uh, understand that we weren't a country and that we're not a country. And so that's politically and socially unpopular even today. 
Um, you have advocates and activists and protectors, and you have all these terms to describe people uh, that are challenging our thinking and are challenging our consciousness. Um, so I don't know if I had an answer anywhere in there, but that's no, me. No, it makes sense. I think it's, I mean, basically what I'm, I gathered from our, our complete babbles, both of our babbles put together is it's a personal journey, <laughs> right? Um, and if I'm approaching it yeah. in the right way, if I'm approaching it with respect mm-hmm. and doing it from a, a place of good intentions, then wherever that journey takes me, it, it that's where I, I'm going to go, right? So if it means, um, you know, learning Olelo Hawaii or or whatever it is, you know, that's whatever my journey, if I'm doing it for the right reasons, then it, it, it'll be the right, the right journey. And that's important for me to know, I think. I mean, I, I yeah. think, you, so, so what really set this whole thing off for me was I never understood the Ganen Mono. And I think you were involved in that that mm. celebration a couple of years ago, celebrating the 150 yeah. years that Japanese have been in yeah. Hawaii. And it predates um, the overthrow. It predates... Um, well, American colonization was already starting to happen, but it predates the annexation. And those men that came over were um, in it, actually pretty much adopted and welcomed into the kingdom of Hawaii, learned the language, took on Hawaiian wives, and even some of their descendants didn't know they were Japanese until the cultural center started reaching out to them and saying like, Hey, your great, 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 great grandfather came from Japan. Right. So I think that Mm -hmm. was kind of like the moment I was like, wait, well, maybe we, I don't have to, you know, stay in a lane or a specific lane just because I'm Japanese American. Maybe I can learn the language. Maybe I, as long as I'm doing it, you know, in a right way. Well, I just want to throw out two things. So I want to clarify, there was no formal annexation. So okay. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> and I also want to say that there have been a number of people um, that have been icons in Hawaiian culture. Patnamaka Bacon. Mrs. Bacon is the perfect example of a non-Kanaka, like a non-Hawaiian blood woman who was raised by Hawaiian women, who learned our language, who learned our hula, and who were fierce, fierce advocates for what made Hawaii, Hawaii. And I think that there's nothing to be ashamed of or afraid of in that. I think of a more personal example, my hula brother, Aukai Ogumori, perfect example, not Hawaiian. I love him to death and he knows exactly what he's doing and he knows why he does it. And I think that intention uh, is a big part of this. And then again, respect, right? Like it it really is that. And then I think another point I want to just touch on is that um, we have to get used to and get past this idea that it's not going to be a smooth sailing journey. You're going to have bumps, you're going to hit guardrails, you're going to hit the, hey, what you doing? And you have to be humble enough to take that nuku, to take that scolding a little bit um, and say, thank you. Thank you for teaching me. 
um, and being comfortable enough with the process of learning and being on the journey. Um, and I think that that's like anything else. When I learn Hawaiian language, I'm still learning, by the way. Um, I get scolded all the time. Auntie Maluihi Lee, I was sitting in Honolulu International Airport. We're on our way to go to represent Hawaii at the 11th Festival of Pacific Arts and Culture in Honiara, Solomon Islands. And we're talking story in Hawaiian in the food court at Honolulu International Airport. And I used the word olelo. And she's like, no, vala'au. I don't like that word. You use vala'au. And I was like, got it, Auntie. Right. Yes. Oh, right. Or kamailio. You know, she's like, use those, not olelo. And I was like, got it. Um, and I think it's those moments that I cherish the most, actually, when I think about my own journey uh, with learning Olalo Hawaii, um, that you just have to be uh, comfortable with those moments. And then looking back, those are some of my most cherished moments were the ones where I was getting scolded. Yeah, no, I mean, that's it's all about humility and respect. Right. I mean, and I think um, for in general, even I've had other discussions with people about um, folks who move here. And, you know, have trouble adjusting and it boils down to having respect and being humble enough to be willing to learn. Right. And, and know that you, you may not know everything or you don't know everything. So and the people will teach you how. But, yeah, no, I think that's a good way. We're dude, we we are up against the hour. It went by super quick. Um any last things you want to cover before we wrap up? No, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to talk story with you today and for the platform that we have to have these kind of conversations. So I'm super grateful for you and this journey that you're on doing this podcast. And <laughs> yeah, it's crazy you. that they'll let anybody just post stuff nowadays, man. Like I can, I can create this with my computer and post it and people will listen to it. It's nuts. But I um, appreciate you coming on. Um, hopefully we see each other soon. It's been a while since I've I seen you face-to-face, but I'm sure uh, right. there'll be a HTA thing, thing eventually that I get invited to that I'll see you at. Definitely. All right, bro. Take it easy. Okay, aloha. Aloha.